Watch this. Hello and welcome back to the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. I am Sam Williams and today I'm joined by Bruce Fitzpatrick. Hello. So we've got a, a really special guest on with us today, uh, all in honour of a figure that I personally find really interesting in the game of golf, Babe Didrikson Saharius. Um, before we get going and, and introduce Susan, our guest, there's a few facts about Babe that I just wanted to kind of set at the outset because there's almost too many to get through in a podcast. Um but she was born in June 1911 in Texas, and initially she was an Olympian. She's the only track and field Olympian of all time to win medals in running, throwing, and jumping disciplines. She did that in the 1932 Los Angeles Open, setting world records in all three events. She competed at a professional level in many other sports, including baseball, basketball, billiards, even sewing, before ultimately landing on golf. She was a recording and performance artist where she played the harmonica and sang. She was the first female golfer to play in a PGA Tour event and to this day remains the only woman to make a cut in a PGA Tour event, something she did multiple times. In the 1940s, she won 17 straight amateur titles, including the British Ladies Amateur at Gullen, a feat that has not been achieved by anyone before or since. And as well as notching up 48 professional wins throughout her career, she won 10 women's majors throughout her career and completed the Women's Grand Slam, collecting all three in the same year in 1950. She was a founding member of the LPGA, along with her peers, helped pioneer the growth in the women's professional game. In 1953, Babe was diagnosed with colon cancer and despite surgery would go on to win her final major the Women's US Open in 1954, where she won by 12 shots at Salem Country Club, only months after her cancer surgery, playing whilst wearing a colostomy bag. Towards the end of her life, she was a philanthropist. She used her fame to raise funds for cancer awareness, encouraging more people to go for testing, something that many people never did. And very sadly, Babe died of her illness at the age of 45. She was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 1951 and awarded the Bob Jones Award, the highest award offered by the USGA for her contributions to the game. She breaks a truly remarkable number of records. And whilst it was a relatively short life, it was a life rich in achievements. And that's why we wanted to record this podcast. So our guest today is Susan Califf, a renowned author and professor of women's studies at San Diego State University and someone who's dedicated her career to American women's history, in particular women in sport. Her work on Babe has featured two books and her feature Babe, The Life and Legend was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. I appreciate that's a long intro, guys, but I didn't want to skip over those achievements. So without further ado, Susan, welcome to the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. Thank you. Um, I think that's a, a terrific summary of her life and accomplishments, and it's a pleasure to be with you today. And I'd be amazed if there weren't a few mistakes in there as well, Suze, and I'm sure we can always brush over those at the end when you tell us which ones they were. <laughs> well, Babe, babe um, was her greatest self-promoter, so um, frequently um, misrepresentations of her accomplishments come from Babe herself, of which she was very <laughs> proud. So. There you Fantastic. go. So I guess, um, Susan, the obvious place to start really is is where did your fascination with, with Babe Zaharias and her story, where did that come from? Well, as a girl growing up in New England, um, I told time by sports and the seasons. Also think when one is born in New England, Massachusetts specifically, there's a gene that one inherits that makes one a rather obsessive sports fan. And... Um, I played um, a variety of sports. I did the field events and track and field. Let me make something very clear. At no point am I even putting my name in the same sentence as Babe's. But her name was invoked, um, not by my generation, but by my parents' generation. And she was someone that I was aware of from a very early age. And that knowledge just sort of sat with me until I moved, my first professional job after I completed my PhD at Brown was at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas. And I arrived on the island um, right after a hurricane in 1983. 
And the first day that I had electricity, I turned on the TV like every good American. And there was a made-for-TV movie about David Dixon. And I watched the movie, and it ends with a scroll that says, Babe was treated for cancer at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. And it had a list of all her sports accomplishments. And I just sat bolt upright on my couch because I thought I start work there tomorrow. And the coincidence, it wasn't coincidence, of course, the, 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 the chance of that happening um, led to a series of fascinating events. Um, one day, one does interesting things at a medical center. I was cutting through the oncology ward to get to another part of the hospital, and there was a giant painted portrait of Bay, probably eight feet by six feet, um, posed with golf equipment, and it was in gratitude for her contribution to uh, state-of-the-art cancer equipment at the hospital in the 1950s. And one thing led to the next. Uh, somebody on my faculty said, you're interested in Babe? I think there's a, a very elderly nurse who actually treated her, who I can put you in touch with. And I talked to that nurse and one thing led to the next. And that's how I got involved in researching the life of Babe. Wow. So do, am I right in thinking the research and Babe came before your kind of career working with San Diego University and, and kind of, you know, essentially lecturing and, and working on, you know, women's studies? Did the interest in Babe kind of precede that then, really? That's correct. I mean, at the Medical Center in Texas, I was teaching medical ethics, the history of medicine and women's history to medical students and their clinical faculty. And this discovery that I was in the exact same location where Babe had been retreated repeatedly for cancer. And of course, she grew up in Beaumont, Texas, about 90 miles from the medical center and rose to fame in Dallas, Texas, um, opened, opened that whole line of research for me. And I worked on that book and completed that book. Um, well, I worked on it the years I lived in Texas and then finished it up when I relocated to San Diego and joined the Women's Studies faculty. An incredible. I mean, it's, it, the, I can only begin to imagine the, the kind of work that has to go into documenting and, and researching for a book of that length. I guess, you know, just in, in terms of the context around Babe's life, just, just help. I get the sense that an understanding of her golf career is impossible until you have an understanding of her childhood, I suspect, and and also her career as an Olympian. So just, you know, take us back a little bit to her, her background, I guess, because before she even started playing golf, I'm right in thinking that she was kind of a, she was already a multi-sport athlete, but golf wasn't something she played, right? Right. She's an exceptional human being on so many levels. As a young girl growing up in Beaumont, uh, she used to go door to door to her neighbors and point at her chest and say, I'm Babe Didrikson and I want you to cut your hedges this high because I need to practice hurtling for the Olympics. As a, as a young girl, <laughs> uh, pre-10 years old, she was fond of saying, I'm going to be in the Olympics. And she would practice jumping those hedges. And every now and then she'd have a recalcitrant neighbor who would refuse to cut them. And she'd go back and this time pound on the door and say, I want you to cut the hedges. She'd also challenge boys in the neighborhood to a very um, frightening child's game. They would uh, ride on open train cars and see who would be the last one to jump out of the boxcar before it went into the tunnel. And many boys in the neighborhood ended up with broken ankles, broken arms, and babe won every single time. So she's completely atypical. She has a tremendous amount of bravado. Her parents encouraged Babe and her brothers and sisters to lift weights in the backyard. They were poor Norwegian immigrants. So lifting weights consisted of a broom handle with a kind of heavy weight, like an iron, uh, tied onto the end. But there was never any sense of hesitancy on her parents' part for her to compete. In school, she played basketball. Uh, she competed in swimming, softball throw, uh, running, field events. 
Um, and then in her later years, she adds to that uh, bowling, billiards, um, and virtually any sport that was available, she would turn her interest to. And she excelled at them all. And frankly, she found competition with girls unstimulating because she was so much better. And so she, at a very early age, challenges boys in their own games and beats them. And this makes her a bit of an outcast. Uh, she's everybody's favorite teammate, but uh, her her peer group doesn't quite know what to make of her. And as the years go by, um, this, what I call in the book, a sort of gender slippage, you know, this inappropriate gender behavior for a child in the 1920s and 30s is something that escalates and that becomes uh, more of an issue in her life. But yes, she excelled at so many things. In high school, she led her, uh, they moved from Beaumont to Dallas, uh, partly for work opportunities for her father and partly because of yet another hurricane. Galveston is very susceptible to hurricanes. And when she moves to Dallas, uh, she has the chance to play on a major high school basketball team. And again, indicative of a very strong personality, she walks into the locker room the first day and she says to the other girls that are there, which one of you plays center? And this young woman raises her hand and Babe says to her, I'm Babe Didrikson and I'm gonna take your place. And she was one of the first athletes that I've come across that used mental psyching out as a very, very deliberate strategy to gain an advantage on her opponents. And she leads the high school to a championship. And that leads her to a very unusual opportunity, which is to be recruited by the employer's casualty insurance company in Dallas uh, as a quote-unquote employee, technically she was a typist, mm -hmm. but she was really playing professional sports under the company's name. And there was a whole network of teams in the United States that offered this opportunity to working-class young women. And she leads the Royal Purple, that's their, their name, uh, to the um, national title two years in a row in 30 and 31 and this is what truly puts her on the map as a phenomenal athlete nationally that's incredible isn't it when you think that you could be recruited as a as you say a typist but but really there to play the professional sports and you know clearly a standout you know and it feels how how does someone because she goes on to them you know obviously compete at the olympics and excel on a world stage you know in very very different disciplines was there anything you know physically or mentally that made her just so versatile do you think so it's very rare you see that level of versatility anything in any sort of sort of sporting game throughout history right yeah that's an excellent question if i had to answer the question in one word my answer would be ferocity babe approached sports and winning not as something that she would try to do but as something that she would do and best anyone before during or after herself. Um, it's interesting. She did not receive a lot of coaching, which I think is part of why she participated in so many sports. You know, when we think of athletes now, they're really, you know, a student, an exceptional athlete might be encouraged to play basketball, football, something, uh, obviously football more for men than women in high school. But once talent is identified, the, the, the athlete is really encouraged, focus on baseball, focus on track and field. Um, and Babe didn't really have that type of coaching. And so she pursued what interested her. In fact, when she starts playing for the insurance company, after the two national basketball championships, they can see that she's clearly bored. And so they come up with an idea as a stunt, actually, which was to have her compete as a one-woman team 
in Evanston, Illinois, in 1932 for the U.S. Olympic tryouts in track and field. And so in one afternoon, she competes in 10 events and sets world records in six of them. And the second place team, the University of Illinois, scores 22 points, and Babe Didrikskin scores 30 points. And interestingly, at this point in time, the International Olympic Committee thought that girls and women's bodies could not stand the stress and strain of elite competition. And so even though she had set six world records in an afternoon, she was forced to choose only three events in which she would compete in the Olympics. No athlete female could compete in more than three events. And so she chose the discus, uh, high hurdles, and javelin. And uh, employees' casualty realized they had lightning in a bottle. And now she's making front page news, including the New York Times. I mean, who wins two basketball championships and single-handedly wins the Amateur Athletic Union track and field tryouts for the Olympics and sets six world records? So her practice ethic is also legendary, rightly so. As I mentioned before, Babe created a lot of myths about herself, but one thing she did not need to fan the flames of was how she practiced. Her sister Lily recalls Babe practicing driving golf balls. This is when some driving ranges first started to have lights at night until her palms bled two or 300 balls at a time. And Lily would be there with her and beg her to stop. And Babe said, I don't like my shot yet. And she'd keep going. And the best Lily could manage was to get Babe to wrap her palms in a kerchief to catch the blood. Um, her work ethic bordered on unhealthy at times. She pushed herself extremely hard. And part of that can be explained by the fact that very early on, after her success with the basketball championships, she became the primary wage earner for a family of seven. And so for her, winning in sports was not only a satisfaction of being the best, but also the knowledge that she could provide for her extended family. I mean, money is something that comes up a little bit throughout the, you know, the kind of research. And when you look into her life, that it certainly feels that maybe sort of between those, between the sort of 32 Olympic Games and then, you know, really up into the early 50s when they're starting to really lead the, the LPGA and she's, you know, a huge net, huge household name at that point, that she's doing quite a few things to earn a living. Is that fair to say? She's, she's almost participating in different sports and doing things almost like as a bit of a, um, she's almost like a showman really in some respects, isn't she? To, 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 to kind of earn a living. And, you know, that leads me to wonder like, why, why did she settle on golf? Because at the time mm. you would, you can't imagine that golf had any opportunity of paying a living for her at that point. Right. It didn't. Um, but to your first point, yes, she becomes a sort of one one woman stunt show. Um, she accepts a brief stint in Chicago as a stage entertainer, earning uh, $2,000 a week, which was unheard of. Uh, the average working man in the United States during the Great Depression is earning about $400 a year uh, doing working class um let's say carpentry or working in a factory, but she only, and she's playing the harmonica. She's running on a, um, um, a rotary machine, breaking through a false ribbon. She's singing, um, but she was very bored being indoors. And so she left that after two weeks, much to the chagrin of um, Fred Cochran, who had arranged that for her. Um, she takes on one-on-one -on -one exhibition baseball pitching in the major leagues. Uh, she pitched against Dizzy Dean and Babe Ruth. 
and struck them out. And that was not set up. She actually struck them out. She also got in the uh, boxing ring with the brother of the middleweight champion of the world mm-hmm. in boxing garb in short shorts. And uh, that was staged, and he took a dive. But the press picked that up as she had knocked out the middleweight champion. And, of course, Babe ran with that coverage. And um, so she also joins a um, traveling donkey ball baseball team. This is something I have no idea if this exists in the UK. But I actually saw this as a child growing up in New England. Different teams would sit on the back of mules, donkeys, and play baseball that way. And, of course, the donkey has a will of its own and won't go to first and won't do this and that. They played for a team called uh, House of David, made up of former Major League pros who were trying to keep a stream of income coming in. She was the only woman. She had to travel city to city by herself. And, um, you know, one could argue that some of the things she did, she even proposed racing the horse that had won the Kentucky Derby. But she was discouraged from doing that from those closest to her. They said, babe, you've, you've got to draw a line. You're, you're an Olympic athlete. You need to retain some sense of um, class. But she took on a number of things, many of which were controversial. And again, what she does is challenge men at their own games. Your second point, why golf? Well, she very consciously made a decision. She wanted to ascend from her working class background. Also, by the early 1930s, she is the target of much unkind, cruel press speculation about her sexuality and gender identity. She had sports writers like Grantland Rice, who were completely in her corner, and adored her, but there were other writers, one in particular, Paul Galico, who wrote for Vanity Fair, which was a highly circulating magazine at the time, still is, and he wrote an article about Babe after the Olympics called Mr., Miss, or It, and in it he speculated that she was the member, premier member of something he dubbed the third sex, that perhaps she was lesbian, Um, And that she was, he coins another term, a muscle mall, M-O-L-L. And so her excellence in sports starts to have a double edge to it, which is while her skill is unquestionable, her persona, her behavior, and her excellence is beyond belief for many people. And Babe saw in golf a way out of this. In my um, many, many hours of interviewing Betty Dodd, who became her female partner the last six years of Babe's life, an intimate partner, Betty told me that Babe used to keep her track and field medals, including the Olympic medals, stuffed in coffee cans on the kitchen counter. And when asked why she didn't have them out on display in the house with all of the golf trophies, Babe used to growl, I like to forget about them days. It was a very painful time for her. It put her on the international stage as a performer and as a character and as someone to be reckoned with. But it also was the start of a very difficult chapter in her life. So... Simply put, why golf? Golf represented upper middle class, upper class status, and golf was a ladies' game. Golf was something that, you know, you wore a skirt, uh, you uh, were supposed to behave a certain way on the links, which, by the way, Babe chose often not to do, but that's why golf. And you're right. When she joined golf as an amateur, it was impossible to make a living at the sport. Quite interesting. You mentioned the um, the, the unkind press treatment there, Susan, in terms of the athletic achievements. And um, 
tremendous skill that that Babe exhibited in, in so many different events. But it also seems like she she struggled with that when she turned to golf as well, in that they were very, very um, you know, she was denied amateur status. They were unwilling to to let her be an amateur um because of a kind of professional background, even though it was in other sports. Could you perhaps kind of talk to us a little bit more about that chapter of her life and how she managed to overcome or whether she did in fact overcome um, those hurdles in, in golf too? Sure. I mean, the women that were the outstanding amateurs in the United States were openly hostile to Babe. They called her a truck driver's daughter, even though her father was a ship's carpenter craftsman. The, the, the comment was clear. They were saying, she's not our type. She doesn't behave, she doesn't speak, she doesn't uh, dress and carry herself the way that a lady golfer should. Babe has a turning point in her life when she meets a socialite in Dallas, a wealthy woman and her husband named Bertha Bowen. And Bertha Bowen takes Babe under her wing and she says, look, Babe, if you're ever going to make it in golf, you have to let me smooth out your rough edges and she takes Babe to Neiman Marcus. Yes, there's a Neiman Marcus in the 1930s. And buys her several hundred dollars worth of feminine clothes. Gets Babe's hair styled. Gets her nails done. Buys her pumps, shoes that are pumps. And says to Babe, whenever you're out in public, you must wear a girdle and a bra. Something that Babe didn't do. And she said things to Babe like, stop swearing, stop spitting. One of the things Babe had done at the Olympic Games was to challenge other Olympians to a spitting contest, which, of course, she won. So under Bertha's tutelage, some of the rough edges of Babe are smoothed. But what Babe loved to do was to play the press. She loved to pull out this tomboy rough persona. She would tell a, a body joke to reporters, something that a lady would never do in that era. Um, she'd step up to the tee and yell to the, to the gallery, all I need to do is take off my girdle and let her fly. Um, and this kind of thing, while immensely entertaining and brought her much coverage, made the women amateur uh, best players cringe, and they were very hostile to her. They were also, let's say, um, intimidated by her game. She routinely hit drives of 275, 300. Her putting game was stellar from eight feet in, and uh, she grandstanded on the links. And as we know, golf has very uh, distinct etiquette. And Babe would frequently violate it at will. And so she received a great deal of condemnation. And frankly, they did their best to try to keep her out. Um, but she was such a drawing card for the media and for the game. And then as she began to, with Bertha's influence, get into these tournaments she won. And so now what do you do? Well, the press covers her. And it's interesting. Sometimes she'd win a tournament and the coverage would be half text about her game. But the, the first half of the text would be about how feminine she was and how she opened her purse for reporters to see her eyeliner and lipstick. So Babe is constantly playing the press, but painfully she's also being played by them because she is single at this point. Aspersions have already been cast about her sexuality and gender identity. And so they're still speculating, you know, who is this? And they use the word creature, you know, and so golf, Babe had a lot to overcome to find a place in golf where she was even moderately accepted. Bizarre, isn't it? When, when you sort of talk through it there, you, you feel like there's 
you know, in some respects, the media see her perhaps as like the last of a Victorian freak show almost. And that's why it becomes quite interesting for them. And similarly, she's trying to use that that media attention to market herself and actually to, to help elevate her. And all the while you've got this, you've almost got this tightrope, haven't you, of people who just, the establishment who are totally offside with it, but also some people who just seem to be simply in awe of her ability as well and wanting to encourage her because I'm right in thinking she starts to pick up invitations to certain events, doesn't she? And I think that's where she meets George. Her husband is playing in a, in an event there. She starts to get kind of invitations to play in certain PGA events. And, you know, you know, she starts to make the cut, she starts to play good golf and she's got people around her that are encouraging her. And it's almost like there's this perfect storm of, dissenters and promoters all kind of clashing at the same time do you know what i mean it's just, it's not when you read about it it doesn't feel like everyone's kind of beating her down it's like everyone's has a different view on the whole thing and it's quite interesting when you look at it i think well i think you know the the tightrope uh, tight image and the perfect storm i think they're both spot on um the American public and on to some level, the world stage did not know what to make of Babe. She was so atypical for a young woman. And at the same time, golf had much to benefit from her persona. There was never anyone as exciting, as brash, as outspoken. She was one of the most charismatic people. Anyone that met her had... 10 babe stories to tell, um, some of which were funny, some of which were shocking, some of which were, but they knew they had met one of the major personalities of their time. And babe played all of this to the hilt, uh, sometimes to her detriment, most often to her benefit. When she meets George Zaharias at the U.S. Amateur Open in Los Angeles in 1932, she's paired with him um, just in an, a draw. And he at the time is a champion wrestler. And wrestling in the United States then what is what it is now, which is entertaining theater. And his name was the crying Greek from Cripple Creek. Cripple Creek is a town at 14,000 feet elevation in Colorado, where I've actually been. And um, he was a tremendous self-promoter. He was a, a bad guy who cried in the ring. And he made a fuss. He said, I don't want to play with no woman. He was a working class toughie himself. And um, by the end of their match, he's putting her in half Nelson holes and she's flipping him to the ground. So they they were a pair. And by that, I mean, if it brought attention, if it brought a paycheck, if it brought a laugh, they found great entertainment in each other. People found them tremendously entertaining. Babe used to say when she met him, he was a Greek god. He was a finely chiseled, handsome young man. And as the years went on, she said he turned into just another goddamn Greek because he ballooned out to almost 400 pounds. He had a number of health problems that he didn't care for. So her relationship with George, interestingly, um, gives her the credibility of a heterosexual relationship, but it also adds to this freakish stature because they engage in things that, let us just say, most husband and wives don't do which is wrestling holds. And uh, George would drive his big pink Cadillac onto the green at a tournament and puff a big cigar and yell to babe, the wind's coming in from the east. Nobody else could have gotten away with this except babe. And she was frequently dressed down by tournament organizers and uh you know, needless to say, her competitors had strong opinions. Meanwhile, the galleries were at eight to 10,000 people and golf was on the front page. So, you know, what do you do with this conundrum? 
there's a lot written about her, her, her kind of um, the relationship with George and her sexuality and her home life and, and things around that. So, I mean, do you get the feeling that, that her and George had a kind of a happy relationship? Whether there's some reports, I think that there was possibly some domestic abuse there. I don't know whether that, you know, how did that all kind of play out in her professional life? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think they genuinely loved each other. I think they were a married couple for many years of their relationship. Yes, there were there was evidence of uh, certainly overwhelming control on his part. He became her manager um, and promoter, and he was not um, measured about it at all. He overbooked her. He fueled her, I'm going to say, obsessive practice sessions. He sent her on global golfing exhibitions and tournaments when she had clearly pleaded with him to let her stay home and rest. He controlled all the money. It's a very, I think, telling and disturbing scene where she comes out of a oncology treatment at the Texas Medical Center and she has no money in her pocket he was supposed to pick her up here she is the first woman athlete who earns over $100,000 a year and she has no pocket money and she's forced to call around and try to find a friend who can pick her up and take her home and there was evidence very very difficult to corroborate as you can imagine that there may have been more in the realm of abuse. Um, and he was not the most savvy promoter. You know, he would book her for a golf exhibition about, you know, against Gene Sarazen or this one or that one for $300. When Fred Cochran came into her life, he said, this is insane. She can get $1,000 for an exhibition match. So ironically, sometimes George, you know, with his wrestling mentality, um, actually undersold her. But there's no question that her relationship with George, um, one professional uh, woman's golfer later said, let ladies golf heave a collective sigh of relief because now their main star was to all sense and purposes, appeared to be heterosexually married. George was very handed in other ways as well. He um, tried in the early years to rule the LPGA with an iron fist. He said at one uh, coordinating committee meeting, he said, ladies golf is a racket just like wrestling and I'm gonna rule it like I ruled wrestling. And, um, I want to say that when I began my research on this book in 1984, George had passed. He had died in 1983. So the fact that he was deceased, I think, let many people feel a little bit more comfortable talking honestly about him. Because frankly, during his lifetime, he was a force and not someone that you would want to mess with in terms of his verbal style and uh, various other things he would do. Now, here's where another contradiction arises. Babe is trying to ascend social class and sexuality speculation by becoming more ladylike. And George has no interest in becoming more refined. He used to sit at banquets with his elbows on the table, drink out of the pitcher of water, dunk a loaf of bread, uh, you know, grind it back and forth over a big slab of butter and chew on the loaf of bread. And Babe used to scold him in public and in private and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a lady here and you're not helping. And he'd say, pardon my French, but he'd say, I don't give a shit. You know, this is who I am. So he is both a ticket to acceptability and yet a millstone around her neck. Um, but he also, um, I argue, becomes her wife in a traditional sense. He takes care of her meals. He does her bookings. He does her massage. Um, he 
stops his own multifaceted career. He had run a haberdashery. He owned a semi-pro football team. He quits his own wrestling career, devotes himself completely to Babe. And I think that we know enough now about sports couples to know that this can become a little problematic um, in that as the years go by, his identity is completely wrapped up in Babe. Um, The control um, escalates and um, later in life, there's many scenes that are witnessed. One that comes to mind at the moment is that when she's in the hospital in Galveston being treated for cancer in the early 50s, he's in Tampa Bay and he had taken to drink quite a bit. And he's standing on a street corner, very tipsy, pointing to himself and saying, I'm the husband of Babe Didrikson. I'm the husband of Babe Didrikson. And people are walking by and finally a couple of acquaintances come and they collect him off the corner and take him home. I mean, this is a this is a terribly sad scene. One, you ask the question, why is he not with her in Texas for the cancer treatment? And two, he's clearly heartbroken that she's sick. But the grandstanding of of George Zaharias is now on the husband of Big Dickerson. So it's a complicated relationship. And I think it helps us understand a little bit why when he becomes aware that Babe is having an intimate relationship with a young female golfer, he does not leave her. He's economically dependent on her. His identity is completely wrapped up in her. And frankly, he he has become her shadow in a way. So people say, you know, well, why? What kind of man stays when he knows that? Well, life was complicated and he made that decision. And I guess, you know, despite that that complicated relationship, from Babe's perspective, it, it seems to have the intended effect of allowing her to regain her, her amateur status, I think, in 1942, albeit she has to give up my own thing, she has to give up other professional sports for, for three years or so. Um, is it fair to say those four, you know, the, the rest of the forties and the early fifties, that's, that's the kind of peak of her career. And she's well and truly established as a household name in, in women's professional golf. And obviously then goes on to, um, you know, be a, a pioneer in the development of the ladies professional golf association. Perhaps you could sort of tell us a little bit more about that Susan. Sure. Absolutely. Babe always said that the, um, uh, British Women's Amateur Golf Tournament in uh, the championship in 1947, where she was the first American woman uh, to win it since its inception in 1893, was the turning point for her. It garnered her transatlantic fame. Uh, she played brilliantly to the British press. Um, she had had a significant winning streak in the United States before that. Um, she had actually chipped a bone in her thumb during practice for that tournament, but she kept it a secret. Um, she brought all of her charismatic flamboyance um, and uh, was dubbed Superman's sister. Um, she had asked for clothing uh, donations because she hadn't packed right for the, the dampness of Scotland and she wore a uh, uh, air raid worker's uniform and her uh, lucky slocks, uh, slang for corduroy pants. Um, she did a jig. She sang a Highland song. She hurdled the clubhouse wall, and she won. And that made her gave her credibility in the golf world uh, that was just unparalleled and something that couldn't be assailed or questioned. George also met her on the boat returning to the United States, and they both mugged for the camera, um, kissing and hugging, and she held the trophy high again while she did a jig. Um, And as you say, in the late 40s, uh, she continues this very impressive winning streak 
of, uh, she claimed 13, uh, 17 consecutive wins, actually much painstaking research revealed it to be 13, but it was a myth that Babe perpetuated. She just wrote out a loss in Spokane, Washington. And she obviously becomes the top money winner, although the purses are very, very small. And it's at this time that Fred Corcoran, a sports promoter, um, decides that he sees an opportunity uh, to make a second attempt at founding a professional women's golf association. In 1944, there had been an attempt to found the women's PGA, which was very short-lived. In 47-48, Corcoran persuaded a clothesmaker, Alvin uh, Hanmacher of Weathervane Sports, to put up money for a professional tournament, $15,000 plus 5K for a winner. That was an unheard of purse for women's golf. And uh, Babe uh, promptly won that tournament. And during that time, 47-48, um, the second attempt is successful at founding the LPGA. And the first six members of that are Babe, Hattie Berg, Helen Detweiler, Betty Jameson, Betty Hicks, and B. Gottlieb. And of course, someone that absolutely needs to be named here is George Zaharias. He was never voted in with a seat, but he was at every meeting and played a very strong role. Um, again, in her, as told to autobiography, called This Life I've Led, she told it to a sports writer when she knew she was dying. Babe, Babe claimed she was the first president. Actually, she wasn't. Patty Berg was the first president. Babe was president from 53, 54, and 55. What is clear is that the LPGA succeeded and every female golfer, whether they were a fan or a detractor of Babe personally, said that Babe made the tour. Um, she was uh, a personality. She was colorful. She had a tremendous sense of humor, a sense of fun. Um, and yet the other side of that is that in 1948, at the National Women's Open in Atlantic City, when she had a, about a 15-stroke lead after the first two rounds, she said to the sponsors of the tournament, I'm not coming out for the second two rounds unless you up the purse. Now, the, you know, this well, is the kind yeah. of thing as a biographer you wonder, you know, do you tell everything? Well, my approach on this biography was that there'd been so much myth-making around Babe, much of it done by herself. And I had the opportunity to interview her living siblings, Betty Dodd, pro golfers, uh, Bertha Bowen. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to tell the truth as these people saw it. And uh, they upped the purse a thousand dollars, and Babe went out and won. And of course, that was never told at the time. Why is it worthy of telling now? It speaks to a ferocity that I'm talking about. It also speaks to a sense of, I'm this good, damn it, I deserve the money. Mm. Because mm -hmm. even with the increased women's purses, the men were out earning the women exponentially. And while Babe didn't do these things with a feminist consciousness, in other words, she didn't think I'm going to lobby for more money so that women golfers in the future, she lobbied for more money because she truly believed she deserved it. But the effect, the impact was that it improved women's golf for generations. And to this day, it made women's golf the only sport feasible for women to earn money during that era. Yeah, it's fascinating that, isn't it? Because I guess in the men's game, we maybe think of the likes of Arnold Palmer being this very charismatic figure who, who's instrumental in the, in the development of the PGA Tour. Um, and, and when we maybe look back further at 
figures like Ben Hogan and Byron Nelson, they almost look like reluctant celebrities where Byron Nelson wants to spend time on his farm and Ben Hogan really just wants to, to, to play the game away from the galleries. In many ways, it seems like Babe Zaharis is like almost the first true golfing celebrity who for her, the game is as much about the celebrity and the fanfare and entertaining people as it is about the genuine kind of intrinsic motivation to play the game. Um, it's interesting, you know, the, the talking about the myth-making that she does on her, you know, she perpetuates really, um, which doesn't seem to have, it doesn't seem to often be the case with, with a lot of other athletes at the time. And we, does that come from an insecurity? Do you think, does that come from a desire just to, to grow the sport or to, as you as you said, perhaps it's to do with the fact that she thinks, you know, she's that good. She deserves that prize money. You know, I think it comes. It's it's complex, and I'm 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 not a trained psychologist, so I shy away from, you know, analyzing. But I do think um, that she loved attention. She loved attention. She would be in a restaurant and stand up and say, "I'm baby Didgeridoo. Did anybody want an autograph?" She walked into a jewelry store in Midtown Manhattan, <laughs> God love her, and said, I'm Babe Didrikson and I want two Rolexes and you can take my picture with you in front of your jewelry store in return. And she got it. So there's a payday with a lot of this. Also, keep in mind that she buys a home for her parents, uh, automobiles for her parents, a washing machine for her mother, um, abodes for her siblings, provides for a very comfortable, very comfortable lifestyle for her and George and Betty. Um, I think that one would have to say uh, it's to the extent that you can't help but wonder, is there some insecurity there? Um, I think she also very cleverly figured out that it was up to her to keep her name in the press, keep her name out there. Mm -hmm. um, she declared, I am the greatest decades before Muhammad Ali was on the planet with us. And she was, I think you're absolutely right, a superstar athlete who used self-promotion throughout her career successfully with a price tag. Uh, but it served her. And, you know, I can't imagine what her legacy would be if the bulk of her career had been during an era of television and wider use of film, mm -hmm. because so much of what she did could only be reported in the written press or on the radio. And without film footage, and of course the average American couldn't click on YouTube and get a replay of a, of a quip that Babe had done. Uh, so her, legacy is a print legacy and a photo legacy um but she was constantly aware of her image and legacy you know at one point she uh agrees to make the film pat and mike uh with katherine hempburn and humphrey bogart and the original script calls for her to lose to katherine hepburn and she puts her hands on her hips and she said, why the hell would I lose on film when I never lose in real life? She said, rewrite the damn script. I'm going to beat her. <laughs> and of course, in the film, she beats her. And, um, you know, she. She's remarkable to me on that front. Uh, she was constantly reinventing herself, almost like a Madonna character the uh, pop star Madonna, you know, if you're slightly bored with this version, let me give you this version, which of course uh, called attention to her um, with new audiences. I was struck when I wrote the youth version of her life. That book came out in the year 2000. Uh, the press, this was a press, Berkeley press that had done the chicken soup for the soul series they said to me you know you have to remember that the younger generation doesn't know who she is so they analogized her to mia ham on the back cover of course who was all the rage with women's soccer at the time and they said you know she was the mia ham of her generation and it just got me to thinking again dear lord had she been 
alive during a televised age. Of course, this television by the early 50s, but certainly not to the extent that it dominates now. But um, she'd still be in the forefront of our minds. But she needs to be reintroduced now because there's just not the visual footage of her doing what she did um, available. And um, it's one of those rare moments, I think, when a researcher studies someone and they become more complex as the years go by. And I like to let a lot of what she did speak for itself and let the reader decide, why is she doing this? Why isn't she realizing this is causing her pain? Um, well, clearly she's doing it because dot, 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 and it leads for much great discussion. I think it's interesting because you're talking about there essentially, you know, how her legacy has kind of evolved almost. And I think, you know, it's quite a, a neat way to sort of bring the pod towards a sort of end as we're talking about, you know, perhaps, you know, almost the end of Babe's life. You know, she's she's ill in, I think, diagnosed in 1953. She has, you know, I think her win in 1954, the US Open, you know, is perhaps the epitome of probably, you know, her heroicism, really, the most incredible victory there. And then, you know, kind of talking about her legacy, you know, just just take us there in terms of those years, you know, 1953, 54, she's, you know, she's really not well. And, and then kind of in her, I kind of get the sense that in her closing years, she really uses her platform for, for good yeah. as well, really. And I think yeah. there's a lot to be said for that. Oh, a tremendous amount to be said for it. So she's diagnosed with cancer for the first time in 1953. And uh, it's first erroneously diagnosed as an appendectomy. And in that era, um, the standard in American medicine was not to reveal to cancer patients their truthful diagnosis. It was about an 80-20 split to keep the diagnosis a secret because they thought it would devastate most people. So Babe actually erroneously thought she had been cured after surgery. And so she very bravely postures as someone who can beat the greatest foe, defeat cancer. She invokes sports metaphor constantly, you know, the highest hurdle she ever leaped. The fact that she doesn't factually know doesn't detract from me because when she, the cancer returns, now she clearly knows she hasn't been cured. And she continues with the bravest public acts of consciousness raising imaginable. She says, I have cancer. Um, you need to get tested. You need to get treatment. She allowed herself to be photographed in her hospital bed up to several days before she passed away, she had lost a tremendous amount of weight. She sat up, she styled her hair, she put on lipstick, and she posed for photos in bed, primping, showing I still care about life myself. She visited cancer wards, um, founded a golf tournament, uh, to raise money for cancer education, bought top-of-the-line cancer detective equipment that was sitting in Galveston, used for many years. Interesting that it became in service in Dar es Salaam in Africa. The equipment was later shifted to Africa for use. Um, and she became a spokesperson for the American Cancer Society, so much so that she appeared on the very, very famous Ed Sullivan show, a Sunday night weekly entertainment variety TV show, um, where she received um, accolades for her work in cancer education. And President Dwight Eisenhower met with Babe and gave her the uh, symbolic honorary cancer sort of hope uh, for the work she had done. And so I think on this regard, she is in a way a first, as she had in been in so many athletic events, the first public personality to say, I have cancer, 
to try to bring comfort to other people with cancer, to raise money, to raise consciousness, to give cancer patients hope. She would go to cancer wards unsolicited, just walk into the cancer ward at the University of Texas Medical Branch and sit on the end of someone's bed and talk to them. Also, I think very touchingly, she always wanted her golf clubs by her bed in the hospital. By the way, the Ed Sullivan show in the early 50s, Babe and Betty Dodd had appeared on that show. Babe played the harmonica. I actually have a 45 single uh, of her playing the harmonica and Betty Dodd playing the guitar. Uh, so that was her second time on Ed Sullivan. And um, she's really um, quite remarkable. If one ever has the chance to go to the Freestanding Museum in her honor in Beaumont, Texas, one of the very, very few museums in the United States in honor of a single woman, um, there are as many trophies on display about her work, trophies, plaques, honors on display about her work with cancer, as there are sports. Also, let me tell you that the museum is about half the size of a regular high school gymnasium, and the number of medals and honors and trophies that she accumulated in her lifetime are so great that they can actually rotate the display three full times before showing all of her accomplishments. Um, so as a medical humanitarian, she's unsurpassed. Interestingly, she forbids uh, both George and Betty to see her the last many days of her life because she wants them to remember her as a stronger, uh, fuller physical person. And uh, Betty Dodd took that banishment in stride, she was heartbroken. Um, and Babe made the decision about George because after the second diagnosis that the cancer had returned, George broke down in the elevator at the hospital and wept. And Babe realized that her energy needed to go toward her cancer education work and taking care of herself. Quite frankly, as a realist, she didn't feel she had the energy to take care of the two people closest to her who were devastated. Um, so when she dies, um, her obituary is on the front of newspapers in the UK, the New York Times, the LA Times, uh, and she's ha hailed as a national hero, actually, um, not only for the multi-sport accomplishments, but for the truly heroic work uh, as someone who had gone public with cancer in an era where that simply was not done. People actually, a fair number of people actually thought cancer might be contagious at that point. And Babe worked so diligently to try to quell those rumors and give hope to other cancer patients. Brilliant. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I was really big. Thank you for, for, for joining the podcast, Susan. And, you know, I think it's really helping, stuff, isn't it? Yeah. yeah and just really bringing moving. it to life, isn't it, Bruce? It's, it's, it's quite, um, it's, you know, rather than going through her career kind of blow by blow, it's, it's brilliantly brought to life through the kind of context and your research. And I think, you know, just a big thank you. I think it's, you know, it's important to kind of like put a light on these amazing achievements. And I just find, have always found Babe's career, you know, particularly fascinating. So a big thank you for joining the podcast. I, I have one kind of um, parting question, really. When you look back at it and you think, you know, she had her own achievements, I feel like she made a significant impression on kind of, um, so, you know, kind of um, gender issues within sport. Um, obviously, founding of the LPGA and her kind of legacy of work there with the cancer and, and, and raising awareness there. What would you say is kind of her biggest legacy? I think that would be a nice way to perhaps close the pod her biggest legacy is the astounding life she led she is a member of more sports halls of fame than any other athlete in history 
She was chosen by the ESPN Major Sports Network as the outstanding female athlete of the 20th century, the only woman in the top 10. The Associated Press named her the female athlete of the year six times during her lifespan. Her work as a medical humanitarian, unprecedented. She opened doors for women athletes in a way that is truly immeasurable. I think her legacy brought on something as profound as Title IX equity, equity legislation in the United States in 1972, which mandated that public institution fund girls and women's sports equally with men's. But the personality, you know, I mean, she was so charismatic, so willful, so certain in the persona that she presented. And yet I'm consistently touched by the delicate balance, the pain that was underneath, uh, but the determination to be the best. And in a short life, I and mean, this is a 45-year-old life we're talking about, to have done so much and to have reached iconic stature for an entire generation. And I think sometimes when younger folks learn about her, they end up with one word, which is, wow, I had no idea. I don't know that there'll ever be another babe, male or female, because of specialization in sports, because of coaching, because of this and that. Um, she scrambled for every dollar, and she had a lifelong impact on positive change in women's sports. That's brilliant, Susan. Thank you so much for, for bringing that all to life in this podcast and all the great work you've done to kind of spread her story and her legacy. It's something that, you know, Sam's obviously fairly well read on it. I have um, read up a bit on it in preparation for this podcast, but still feel like I've got a lot more to do. So thank you for all the, all the great work you do on, on um, letting more people know just what a tremendous figure and tremendous legacy babe uh, Didrikson Zaharias left. So um, yeah, thank, thanks again for, for coming on. Oh, my complete pleasure. Watch this.